The text for the sermon of this afternoon, brothers and sisters, is the seventh commandment, the seventh word in the law of our God. And what we confess regarding it in Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 41, there we echo the word of God regarding the seventh commandment as follows. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. That's Lord's Day 41. In response to the sermon, we will be singing from Psalm 50, the stanzas 7, 8, and 11. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are addressing the seventh commandment this afternoon, brothers and sisters, and Lord's Day 41. You shall not commit adultery. In the law of love, it's one of the commandments that are put in the negative. You shall not. When reading the Lord's Day, you also get a somewhat negative impression. At least, it doesn't sound too uplifting when it uses terms such as cursed, detest, and unchaste acts. It certainly gives the impression as if the life within and outside of holy marriage is beset with evil desires and practices. Our Heidelberg Catechism doesn't say too much about the beauty of marriage. Rather, it seems somewhat reserved about our sexuality and focus on unchastity and unchaste acts, especially. Now, upon closer scrutiny, beloved, that's not true completely. It also mentions the fact that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean, though, that Christians are made of marble. Not only the Spirit, also our sexual feelings are dwelling in these temples. And that's not a problem in and of itself. God created us with these feelings. It's well possible that we are both people of flesh and blood and temples of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in that special book in the Bible, the Song of Songs, we hear this Holy Spirit inspire two young people declaring their love to each other in a most beautiful way. 
The girl is fond of her boyfriend and exalts how handsome he is. The young man has a way with words as well, matching her praise. They are sure excited, admiring each other's temple of the Holy Spirit. And there is nothing frivolous in their words. Rather, their words are as holy as the Psalms about Jerusalem or about the temple there. Getting married also isn't something inferior, a weakness or so, like someone who can't quit smoking and finds a place where he can still do so legitimately. Marriage and sexuality are beautiful gifts of God. In view of this, it might be better, brothers and sisters, to characterize the Heidelberg Catechism as very watchful and cautious. It wants to protect something beautiful, precious. It may be true that our Lord's Day could have been a bit more exuberant about the beauty of our sexuality and about the richness of marriage. Still, there's also good reason to be very alert and vigilant in the defense of it. Besides, it doesn't warn us for our sexuality, but for the danger of unchastity. Well, unchastity is a kind of greediness, a strong craving to satisfy your own lusts, gratifying your own desires. It's that kind of craving that's typical for men in the last days, as Paul shows. People will be lovers of themselves, unholy, without love, without self-control, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. It's that immorality which appears enemy number one of our sexuality within and outside of marriage. We see the result of it in the world as well as in the church. It's behind the free sex and lawlessness in the world and behind many a marriage breakdown in the church. In this world, with these dangers, God holds up the law of love for God wants us to live chaste and disciplined lives outside of marriage, in marriage, and in holy service. So that's how I would like to summarize the message this afternoon. God wants us to live chaste and disciplined lives outside of marriage, in marriage, and in holy service. So first of all, God wants us to live chaste and disciplined lives outside of marriage. God, God wants us to live chaste and disciplined lives, brothers and sisters. That's the theme this afternoon in dealing with the seventh commandment. So in this commandment, God holds up the law of love. A preliminary question, therefore, yes, a very important question indeed is this. How much do we consider God in these matters? Do we involve the Lord in matters of our daily life? 
And then I don't just think of our young people, also of their parents and the elderly. Indeed, I pose the question not just with regard to matters of sexuality, friendships, and marriage preparation. I ask you in general, do you ask yourself, what does God want me, want us to do? Does the answer you receive through prayer, meditation, and communication then also determine your life, discipline your walk? Do you deal with questions of life and lifestyle as people thankful for your salvation in Christ, eager to please God in your new life with Him? Is that the attitude and approach you have in your personal life, in your family, and together in your relationships? Is this the attitude you instill in your children? Another question of a general nature, beloved, is the question, how do you deal with your desires? We are living in a society where everything seems possible. And when everything is possible, everything should be within reach too. At least, that's how we are inclined. If you want a girl, you take a girl. If she's willing, then I'm ready to take her. We have easy access to enough means to prevent possible consequences. So satisfying your desires doesn't seem to be a problem. Of course, I realize that a boyfriend and girlfriend who are attracted to each other could desire intimacy for reasons of pure love. In that case, however, doesn't loving each other first of all mean respecting one another? If you truly love each other, should you then go so far as to tempting each other? So how do you deal with those desires? Do you satisfy them freely or control them lovingly? That's an attitude, an approach, which you cannot learn or practice at such a difficult moment very easily. It's something you must have learned before. It's something parents must have instilled in their children. We need to be trained in it long before those tempting occasions. How is that in our families, beloved? How do you deal with desires? You satisfy them? Buy when you want, eat when you feel like, take what you like? Or do you practice yourself and train your children to say no to urges, to control cravings, and to deny yourself certain desires? That's something we have to teach our children when they are young. Everything may be possible, not everything is useful, says Paul. If you can, even if you can afford most expensive toys, they will be happier with less. 
even though your child is good in sport, not everything needs to be sacrificed for it. You need to train them to say no, even if yes is feasible. When you don't teach them to say no to this world's modern-day fashion, its sexy clothing, and its seductive attitudes, then don't be shocked to find out that they won't say no to sex before marriage. As the Apostle Paul puts it, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So it's one thing, brothers and sisters, to have the law of love and the instruction of the Lord for a chaste and disciplined life. It's another to live by them. The Lord gives His Word for our well-being and salvation also in matters of love, sexuality, and marriage. That's what we have to learn from the Song of Songs. Love is not something with which you can play around. Neither can you do so with your sexuality. Sons and daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. That's a timely call for our children, our young people to heed. It's always beautiful to see couples prepare themselves for marriage. Others have come to an age at which they are keenly aware of the opposite sex who wish to get serious about courtship. But that's not something that can be done without self-discipline, self-control, or without prayer. These are matters in which we need the Holy Spirit to guide us as to the choices we make and to help us when we are together and in love. Then prayer is the chief part of thankfulness. Our prayers must not be hindered due to our unchaste thoughts, desires, words, gestures, or acts. Rather, then true love will give you much joy, much pleasure, and lots of fun on the way to a lasting relationship, but within the limits of God's will. A pure and holy beginning of marriage is worth fighting for. Well, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to acquire a wife in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen. In the world, free sex may be the rule, and premarital sex a common practice. It is God's will that a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife first, and then the two will become one flesh. Those are three steps. 
Before they can be one flesh, they need first to be united in holy marriage. As the Lord revealed in paradise, the Lord Jesus reiterated in Matthew 19, and the Apostle Paul stresses in Ephesians 5, verse 31. Literally, they say, they must first be placed under one yoke. They must first learn to live together as sinners, love each other by showing patience, understanding, respect, and self-control to each other. Only then will they be ready to live in the total unity together, which includes the intimacy of love. For this intimacy, beloved, is safe only within the bounds of marriage. Safe sex can be practiced only under the bond of love in the covenant. That's why the way to this marriage is so important. That's not the way of a short moment of intense ecstasy and enjoyment without God, for by such a passion you harm each other. At the end of a way, however, on which you walked with God prayerfully, you will receive each other upon a vow made before God in which you promise to love each other, be faithful to each other, and live in holiness together. Then the way to this day should prepare you for that promise, a holy way. And your life together will assure you of the integrity and love in each other. That's the instruction of the Scriptures, the will of God. That's how we see couples like Boaz and Ruth, Joseph and Mary, come to their wedding day. Yes, that's the way we all must live in and outside of marriage by the grace of Jesus Christ and through His Holy Spirit. And so we come in the second place to see chaste and disciplined life in marriage. On the wedding day, brothers and sisters, husband and wife promise faithfulness to each other. They promise to love each other, never to forsake each other, and to be true to each other always, in good days and bad, in health and sickness, in prosperity and adversity, till death them part. That's a lifelong commitment made before the Lord and many witnesses. It's a beautiful beginning announced in the church and remembered in prayer. It's a much-anticipated life for which bridegroom and bride prepare themselves in various ways. One of these ways is by what is called premarital counseling. That's a very special practice, as I'm sure Nick and Denise will remember, as we had that 15 years ago, which they just celebrated this past Thursday. In those sessions, all the aspects of married life are discussed in the light of God's Word, in the light of the instruction of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 
A Christian marriage may be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. Indeed, the couple learns to see their relationship in the mirror of the bond between our Savior and His congregation. A weak reflection, perhaps, a true one nonetheless. Then one of the features of this relationship, beloved, is the reality that Christ builds His church. It's a work in progress. Hence, one of the aspects in our discussion is the same process of building your marriage, working on your relationship. We discuss ideals and expectations, but also the reality of character traits, personal sins, and perceived weaknesses. They come along into marriage. Together, they have to work on them, help each other to change them, with forbearance and forgiveness. That's how they learn to show love to each other, sacrificial love, forgiving love, and learn more and more so to serve God together, as Christ and the church do. The husband loves to lead his wife in that way, guide her, and live with her before God, and the wife loves to follow her husband on that way, help him, and serve him in their life with God. That's the Christian discipline in their life. That's their commitment also when time goes on and their love gets weaker instead of stronger. For we are living this life in a broken and sinful world. We are entering this life not idealistically, but realistically. Well, the Bible, brothers and sisters, is also realistic about this brokenness and sinfulness of life. That's why the Lord gave the seventh commandment. That's why He allowed for a letter of divorce due to their hardness of heart. Then we see the Lord Jesus instruct His disciples about the protection of marriage. We hear the apostle warn for the wrong passions in marriage, for it does happen that a husband looks at another woman lustfully. It does happen that a woman falls in love with her neighbor. It does happen that married people commit adultery in their heart. Physical, emotional, and mental abuse do happen in marriages that were begun in the name of the Lord, but that did not proceed in their completion to God's glory. Yes, sexual abuse takes place even in marriages that are not chaste, but that are consumed by lust and sexual egoism. Those are serious forms of sin which undermine a marriage fundamentally. When husbands become perpetrators and wives are victims, that's when a separation appears necessary for the protection of the woman and for the repentance of the husband for the salvation of their marriage. 
A marriage, brothers and sisters, is vulnerable. There are risks in small matters, dangers lurking from hidden corners. Immorality is not the only enemy. There are little foxes that ruin the vineyard and must be caught for that reason. We read in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15. And later on in this book, we see these little foxes at work. Chapter 5, verse 2 through 7. The bride dreams that her lover knocks at the door early in the morning. It's not convenient to her, so she doesn't feel like getting up and dressed to open up for him, going out with him. A moment later, however, she changes her mind, but it's too late. Her lover has left. It's a dream. How easily, though, it happens that a misunderstanding, a moment of irritation, or a difference of opinion leads to estrangement. Is it not risky, therefore, to bind yourself to a marriage that's lifelong? Even the disciples wondered whether it wouldn't be better to refrain from getting married. The solution, however, beloved, is then not found in an easier way to a separation or a divorce, but in the way of true faith and repentance, the way of seeking and accepting the help of God, which He promised. It's that way which the author of the letter to the Hebrews highlights, chapter 13, where he first writes, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And then he reminds us of the fact that God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? But the form for the, for the solemnization of marriage says, too, that they may also believe the promise of God that they, as heirs of the grace of life, will always receive His aid and protection, even when they least expect it. What God has joined together he also can and will keep together, yes, can and will keep pure and make pure again. Does that seem, humanly speaking, impossible? Let's not say that too quickly. For many have experienced that what's impossible with man is possible with God. And we come to our third point, chaste and disciplined lives in holy service. Beloved, what a tender and precious matter it is speaking about love, sexuality, and marriage in the light of the seventh commandment. And it's important that we do so together in the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, His body, His bride, that's relevant not only for those who are married or married with children 
It's also important for the unmarried, for widows, and for our young people. Matters like these concern us all. Sins in this aspect of life affect us all. The Apostle Paul also involves the whole congregation in a life of mutual supervision and spiritual care. The older he calls to instruct and encourage the newlyweds, Titus 2. The older unmarried are called to help and encourage the younger ones who struggle with the fact that they remain single. They are good examples to the young people that it is possible to live close to the Lord while you have to control your sexual desires for others. Each member, especially, can identify with the powers of sin, the passions of youth, and the years of struggles to keep your bodies pure, your relationships holy, and your life before the Lord in accordance with His will. Whatever our state of life may be, brothers and sisters, let us all remember that we are in that state as servants of the Lord. That, too, is an important notion in the reality that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are here for service, married or not, with children or not, old or young. That notion has an external component and an internal component. Our body is important, and we may surely adorn ourselves to make us look attractive as wife for our husband, as girl for her boyfriend, however, not in the worldly way of sexiness. Let's keep that in the bedroom but in the spiritual way of modesty, gentleness, and loveliness. The men also show themselves as temples of the Spirit when they display care for their apparel, as older men in self-respect, and as younger men as presentable in holy array, holy attire. More important, however, than this practical appearance is our spiritual presentation as temples of the Holy Spirit. Can people see the Spirit dwells in you, that you serve God with your life? Can they see you are an attractive building of God, a pleasant servant of Christ, how they know that? In the words that you speak, in your conduct, your attitude, and in your priorities in life. There is joy in your life when there is music in your temple, a song in your heart, and happiness in your behavior. In this service to God, beloved, we also must become eunuchs for the kingdom of God in one way or another. As the Lord Jesus says, some are born as eunuchs and do not desire marriage, but rather commit themselves completely to the service of God in His church and kingdom. 
Others became that way because they did not find anyone who was tailor-made for him or her, so that they dedicate themselves instead to a life in service to God in the midst of this world and for his congregation. All others, however, are called to be eunuchs also in the way of devoting themselves to the Lord in their marriage and career, but as believers living for the kingdom of God. That's also a life in the Spirit that involves the sanctification of the flesh. As Paul says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. We're all born in sin and involved in a battle with sin against our flesh, against the world and the evil one. In that service, as temples of the Holy Spirit, we are involved in a battle with the flesh, fighting against unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. In a holy service to God, you curse what God curses. By the Spirit of God, you pursue what pleases the Spirit. And that's a fight which is fought in our heart, from which all evil comes forth, like adultery, fornication, you name it. It's fought also in our living room, where you will have to turn off the TV and help each other promote holiness. It's a service to God which controls the programs you watch, the books you read, and the music you play. The Holy Spirit strengthens you for this battle with sin in this holy service to God. We wage this battle by the grace of God, who in Jesus Christ is merciful and compassionate, forgiving our stumbling, cleansing our sins. That's how we go on our way to the day of the marriage feast of the Lamb. Adulterers, fornicators, and the sexual immoral won't be there, but be outside. Inside is the bride of Christ that washed her garments in her blood. Amen.